Dr. Steve Squires is professor of astronomy at Cornell University and is the PI for NASA's still ongoing missions to Mars. And no, that's not private eye. PI stands for Principal Investigator, the head of the team of scientists and engineers which operate missions for NASA. Steve Squires' explorations have been astonishingly successful. Twin missions which put two mobile rovers onto precise locations on the surface of Mars in January 2004. Then set off with cameras as accurate as the human eye and a number of tools including a rock drill to look for proof that water altered the surface of the red planet. That evidence for water has been found, and while the missions were warranted for 90 days on the surface, the pair of rovers named Spirit and Opportunity are still scrambling on the surface, taking pictures and probing rocks 19 months after landing and counting. Dr. Squires has written a book about his still ongoing twin missions titled Roving Mars, Spirit, Opportunity, and the Exploration of the Red Planet, and he's here to talk to us about it. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Steve Squires. Glad to be here. Dr. Squires, we were in Pasadena January 3rd, 2004, taking part in the Wild About Mars event that, that followed the landing of, of the Spirit rover under, under Gusev Crater. So we shared in, in that bit of uh, nail-biting moments for you as that, that spacecraft bounced us away on the surface. Can you tell us what those, those tense final moments were like for your team? To put it in context, you've got to understand everything that came before. It was 16 years of work for some of us on the team. Um, three years of working almost around the clock for hundreds and hundreds of, of engineers and scientists, and everything was hanging on whether or not we heard that radio signal, whether or not we learned that we had landed successfully. And on top of that, the last two uh, missions that, that uh, had, gone, had been sent to Mars uh, had been failures. There was a, an orbiter uh, that had burned up in the Martian atmosphere and a lander that had crashed on the surface. Um, and so there was just an enormous amount that was hanging on the, the success or failure of that landing at that moment. And I'll tell you, when we got that radio signal, that was one of the best moments of my life. I was in a room full of 800 people, and I got to tell you that you could you could have cut the tension there with a knife too. We were waiting for that signal with you. It was a remarkable evening, and then we did it again three weeks later. Right, and there was that brief moment where there was there was worry that you hadn't heard for like something like 10 minutes. We were all sitting there just really just really biting our nails. That 10 minutes was probably worse for you guys than it was for us because <laughs> I think we had a better sense in the control room of what was going on. I knew that if that first signal had come through. The first bounce is the hardest one. You right. know, this rover lands by bouncing with airbags, and if you survive the first bounce, you're probably okay. And so I felt pretty good we were going to get the signal back. Uh, but yeah, it was a tense 10 minutes. Well, I didn't realize until I read your book um, how much public interest can change in, in, in NASA's thrust and planning missions. And in, in something that was relevant for you was that fascinating discovery of what may or may not be signs of fossil microbial life in a meteorite that's been known to have been blasted off the Martian surface. How did, that, how did that affect people like you pitching possible missions to NASA? Well, what it did is it highlighted the significance of Mars as a place that, that might have once held life. The, the idea that Mars could be an abode for life has, of course, been around for a long time. But as we've learned more about the planet, what we've come to realize is that it's actually a very dry and bleak and cold and desolate place today. But uh, that finding, plus other uh, other research that NASA has done has caused people to rethink uh, what Mars is like and particularly what it was like in the past. And there have been these hints and clues that in the past it might have been different. And so we went there looking for clues in the rocks to tell us 
was it different in the past? Was there water on the surface? Was it a, a, a place that might have been once more habitable, more suitable for life? Is there anything particularly from the, your missions that are going to change NASA's recalibrate for future missions? I think so, because uh, we found really compelling evidence for, for liquid water on the surface. Uh, we found salt deposits that were formed when water evaporated away and left, left its uh, salts behind. We found ripples that were preserved in the rocks for billions of years that were formed when water flowed over, over sand on Mars long ago. So what we can do now is we can point to a specific place on Mars and say, here, at this place, billions of years ago, there was liquid water, and there are mineral deposits still sitting there from those billions of years ago that could preserve within them a record of what conditions were like in that water and whether or not there was ever life there. You were set down to basically prove that, that water uh, had flowed on the surface of Mars. This was highly suspected based on the orbiter photos, but you've, you've now proven that, that in conjunction with that, uh, you know, that famous meteorite and now evidence that methane gas is coming out of the Martian crust. Uh, what, what, what odds would you quote that we're going to find microbes on Mars? You know, I really don't know. One of, the, one of the worst mistakes you can make if you're a scientist is to, is to think you know the answer when you don't have <clears throat> definitive evidence because it can, it can skew your interpretation of the results. If, if you think you know the answer, if you want a certain answer, uh, it, can, it can make you do the wrong thing and conclude the wrong thing. So what I'm trying to do is maintain an open mind and uh, to just design good experiments to go there and try to find the real answer. Yeah, we had a chance to speak previously with with William uh, K. Hartman, whose Atlas, A Traveler's Guide to Mars, was a, a nice companion piece to your volume to really understand about, about the geography there. He noted that NASA's been really um, sort of bent over backwards about making any pronouncements about, about water uh, on the surface, and, and that, uh, well, you've finally proven that it, that it was there. Are we going to find some vast reservoirs of underground water? I don't know. Um, I think there certainly are large reservoirs of underground ice. Uh, we have with uh, a spacecraft called Mars Odyssey, an orbiter that was uh, launched before, right before ours and that, that, that succeeded brilliantly. Uh, Mars Odyssey has found compelling evidence for ice, you know, permafrost beneath the ground. Um, whether or not there's liquid down there is a lot harder to determine because you probably have to go a lot deeper. The spacecraft in orbit right now, a uh, European spacecraft called Mars Express that has on board a radar system that should be able to to probe below the surface and maybe detect uh, liquid down there, but uh, it's, it's too early to say what their results are going to be. Well, your book, Roving Mars, spends a lot of time uh, giving uh, give our, the reader the idea of what has to go into a, a complex mission like this that you were uh, uh, that you that, that you headed. Um, you noted that scientists and engineers really have to cooperate, but they don't always see things the same way and don't always work together so flawlessly. Something I didn't really think about before. Can you talk about the, the different approach of the scientist and engineer? Well, scientists are after scientific truth and want to do whatever you need to do to get that scientific truth. So <clears throat> scientists tend to be kind of idealistic and sometimes a bit impractical. Uh, engineers, on the other hand, they're inventors, they're creators, they're people whose job it is to build something that works and to get it done on time and to get it done on budget. And sometimes the scientists and the engineers really end up at odds with one another. What was remarkable about our mission was that even though we started off, just like so many other missions, with the engineers and the scientists kind of at odds with one another, over the course of the mission and the, the years of trying to develop this stuff, 
a real trust and an understanding grew between the scientists and the engineers, and it was ultimately one of the things that led to our success, I believe, was that the, the scientists and the engineers learned over this arduous process of building the spacecraft how to how to work together, how to accommodate one another, and even today, as we as we uh, as we still operate these vehicles on Mars, the scientists and the engineers on the project have have blended almost seamlessly to to form a very very effective team. But it, it took some effort. Well, Mars, you mentioned it, it's been something of a graveyard for space missions with multiple failures by both the U.S. and Russian, Russian spacecraft leading up to, to your missions there. But it seems almost as if Spirit and Opportunity have had, uh, had good luck to make up for some, some of the prior failures. Can we talk about some of these remarkable uh, bits of luck you've had? You, you put down the Opportunity rover on a flat plane with some minerals associated with water. Then you find yourself in a crater, the, the sides of which have the bedrock you're looking for. That was an incredible stroke of luck. I mean, the, the place where we landed was <clears throat> flat, very uniform, just studded at these very infrequent inter- intervals by, by little tiny impact craters. And through just sheer dumb luck, we rolled to a stop right inside one of those craters. We opened our eyes when we first landed and we looked around and there we were in the middle of this tiny impact crater and exposed in the wall of the crater uh, were these spectacular uh, layered outcrops of bedrock that held the keys to what we'd come looking for. And it was right there. It was 25 feet in front of us. It was, it was an astonishing piece of luck. And our luck has continued. We've had other things like that. Um, the Spirit rover was close to death. Spirit right. was coated with dust. We had dust on the solar panels and, and barely enough power to survive. We managed to struggle up onto the crest of a ridge and we got hit by a gust of wind that cleaned the solar arrays off, and it was good as new. It was amazing. Yeah, there was quite a few good, funny cartoons about that moment when, when it was no, announced that the, the, the rovers were mysteriously cleaned of Martians with car washes and things. It was quite Yeah, yeah, you pick your par- car washes, squeegee guys, all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Your book has quite a few amusing moments, and you're describing that, that, uh, that initial shock of, of not really knowing what you're seeing as opportunities taking its first pictures, literally. Uh, you're seeing him for the first time, the world's seeing him for the first time, and <laughs> you say at one point, holy smoke, leading to a report in Korea that uh, that the second Mars lander has seen mysterious smoke. Yeah, and then they said it's a good thing he didn't say holy cow. <laughs> the question is, you, you no one expected your missions to last uh, this long. You, you warranted them for 90 days, basically. They're now clean as a whistle. How long can these things go on? You know, my wife keeps asking me the same question. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I really don't know. Um, we thought it was going to be dust that would kill them. We don't think that anymore because we do get these wind blasts every every now and then. You know, mechanical parts wear out, or we could just have some electronic part fail, and you'd never see that coming. The thing that's hard is you don't know how long they're going to last, and so we've got to plan for the long term. We've got to have a plan that extends many months into the future, but each individual day we've got to operate them like there's literally no tomorrow because that could be the reality. They yeah. could die today, tomorrow. I don't know. Yeah, but further in keeping with, with your, your run of good luck, you landed the spirit down in the Gusev crater looking for sediments. There's apparently are buried under some lava flows, but then you set, you set out to go climb these nearby hills two miles away, and apparently you're about to summit. We're very close. We're only about 50 feet below the summit. I think we might actually top out sometime in the next several weeks. We've been climbing this thing for a year now, and uh, boy, there's going to be a heck of a view from the top once we get up there. Boy, how far do you expect to be able to see? It depends on how dusty the atmosphere is. Yeah. It depends on the weather. 
you know, the same as any mountain climber. How far do you see? Well, it depends on the weather. If the weather cooperates and there's not a whole lot of dust in the atmosphere, we could be able to see, you know, dozens of miles. And we should also mention that the web, various websites are just fabulous at these continuing stream of pictures you're getting. And not so long ago, there was one photo that just, just stunned me. showed a dust devil off to the side of the craft, and it looked just like, it looked like a scene in Nevada or Utah. It's the same thing. It's the, the, these dust devils are little kind of mini tornadoes that go bopping across the surface. And we've actually gotten so we're pretty good at, at sort of taking movies of them. We know what time of day they happen and where they happen, and we can point the cameras in the right direction. And what we'll do is we'll take sort of a time-lapse photography series of images, and then we can string them together in the movie, and you can actually see this big dust devil kind of dancing across the Martian surface. It's, it's pretty neat. Wow. With the number of photographs you've had and the ability to process them and even get, you know, like uh, 3D images and things, are we going to see uh, an IMAX film of the, of the twin rovers? As a matter of fact, you will, yeah. There's an IMAX film in production. It's also called Roving Mars, and it's uh, going to be coming out, I believe, next January. Wow. <laughs> You've got to realize that these cameras, you, sure, you've seen our pictures in the magazines and you've seen these pictures on the web, but these cameras produce images that are so detailed that you really need an IMAX screen just to see them. Uh, one of our panoramas is enough to fill about six IMAX screens with the data that we have, and we've taken quite a few of those panoramas. So it's gonna, you're going to really see Mars like you've never seen it before in this movie. Really looking forward to that. We should mention to our, our, for our listeners that, uh, that later this month, Mars is actually uh, near opposition again, making quite a stunning appearance up to the naked eye in the sky. Yeah, it's going to appear very bright, uh, bright red, look like a very bright red star. It'll be straight overhead at midnight, about October. I've got to ask this question of, of someone from NASA. It, we've caught up with Mars again in two years. Your book talks about a 26-month uh, cycle. Is that because Mars is at its closest parts, parts that we're catching up a little bit quicker, or is that, well, why is that? Actually, it is 26 months. There's, there's, yeah. there's been a, a, an email kind of bopping around the Internet for a yeah. while saying that Mars is going to be the closest it's been in 60,000 years this August. That's from two years ago. That's what I thought. It's a okay, okay. message that's still floating around, and that's what's confusing people. It's actually going to be about October this year. All right. Well, that was my initial thought, but, uh, but thank you for correcting that one. Can you give us a brief uh, preview of some upcoming missions here, what, what we're going to see next on Mars? Uh, there's a mission that's on the launch pad as we speak at Cape Canaveral. It's called Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And uh, this one's going to go into orbit around Mars with a very, very high-resolution camera and a bunch of other very sophisticated instruments and uh, map the planet from orbit. Uh, the, the camera resolution is so good, we'll be able to see our rovers again from orbit, which will be pretty cool. And then uh, 2007, NASA's launching a lander mission to land near the North Pole of Mars. And then out around 2009 or so, there's going to be another, another rover mission with a, with a much bigger and more powerful rover to follow up on, on some of the discoveries that we've made. So it's, a, it's an ongoing program of Mars exploration. It's very, very exciting stuff. We would congratulate you for all of your, your fine work work here on uh, on the red planet uh, just want to close noting that um, I was pitching last year a commentary for the people down at marketplace they'd bought one that we did previously and they always like to have an economic uh, outlook on things so I, I did one on why the uh, the rovers on Mars have to be one of the best deals that US taxpayers gotten in a long time and they they, 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 they the person's a little bit uh, against space exploration, but I think by the time that this mission is over with and how will you amortize the value out here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rework that and see if I can't get that aired. We feel pretty good about the uh, science return per unit dollar on this one. Uh, we, we feel like we've given the American taxpayers their money's worth. 
Well, I certainly agree. Dr. Steve Squires, thank you very much for speaking with us here at Radio Parallax, and, uh, and, and good luck, and I hope that at some point your wife can get you back again. I mean, I don't want this mission to run out anytime soon, but uh, you've really put in some extra hours on this one. Thank you very much. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.